You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. people who say miracles don't happen mm-hmm. and that you know people are just gullible and where's the evidence mm-hmm. and so I just went and gathered some evidence and it was going to be a footnote but it grew into like over a thousand pages so mm-hmm. 
other other I mean there's so much more that could be written on it but I'll let other people handle that I'm, I'm back to work on commentaries yeah I'm I'm having a hard time thinking of a thousand page footnote right now yeah uh, am, I, am I right, by the way, that my wife and I are secretly watching you on Tuesday nights when we watch The Flash? <laughs> oh. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, um, Dr. Keener, in case my audience might not really know who you are, though, tell us a bit more about you from a personal standpoint. How did you get to be doing what you're doing? Well, it depends on whether you want the long version or the short version, but... Before my conversion, I, I had been an atheist. I was, you know, I just dismissed Christians as stupid, uh, partly because it seemed to me that 80% of the people in this country claimed to be Christians, but it didn't affect how they were living. And so I said, you know, if I, if I really believed in a God, I would give God everything I am and everything I have. But I was confronted with the gospel and the Holy Spirit worked me over and converted me. The problem was that I was left with so many questions because, you know, I had all these objections. And then um, also, you know, the people who brought me the gospel were not too articulate in apologetics. <laughs> um, like, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm very grateful to them. I don't want to get this wrong because if it hadn't been for them, I wouldn't have heard the gospel. But when they brought me the gospel... You know, I asked them about dinosaur bones. They said the devil put them there. <laughs> it wasn't good paleontology and it wasn't good apologetics. But in any case, it left me with a lot of questions. And so in the years that followed, I I started working on some of, some of those things. I said, you know, I need to be able to answer questions like this intelligently. And eventually, um, I mean, there was that and there was also... When God called me to preach his word, there was a craving to understand the scriptures more deeply, more fully, to the point where eventually I was reading 40 chapters of the Bible a day. Wow. And uh, I don't do that regularly now, but, uh, but I did that at that point. But as I began to do that, I began to realize, well, you know, I just wanted to learn the Bible and go out and preach. But the more I read it, the more I realized that I need things that the biblical writers could assume that their audiences knew. I mean, obviously, they, they knew the language that yes. the writers were writing in. And also, there were certain things they didn't have to say because they were just part of their shared background. Mm -hmm. So I started studying background and started collecting index cards, just, you know, writing, writing down notes as I went through ancient sources. Um, got about 100,000 index cards eventually before I converted before I converted to, you know, taking my notes on computer instead, which, you know, back when I started taking the index cards, believe it or not, we didn't have access to computers back then. But uh, As I'm watching you, I, I see a room with a file cabinet. I think, okay, now I understand why you have a file cabinet. Yeah. No, those aren't for the index cards. The index cards are over at my school office. But, uh, but yeah, the other stuff's in the file cabinets. Mm -hmm. So, but, but also, you know, I... I had a passion for learning this this material. I wanted to teach it. I, I I saw this one professor of mine, Benny Yaker, who just was so he just loved scripture so much. He loved understanding scripture so much, and he would teach his students with this passion. And you know, here these students were going to go out and become uh, pastors and so on. And I realized, you know, if God's called me to preach the word. 
what better way could I do that than by teaching? And I really felt like God was leading me in this way. And eventually, um, there were a couple different things, one one in terms of the teaching and another in terms of the apologetics. But in terms of the teaching angle, you know, eventually I was doing a PhD at Duke and I was I was um, really excited about about what I was learning. And I, I wanted to write a background commentary that would just give you background, cultural background on every part of the New Testament. If somebody else hadn't done it first, I mean, if somebody else did it first, fine, it saves me the effort. But since nobody had done it, then, you know, that that was one of my passions at that time. The other reason that I, I went on to doctoral work, though, was because as I was sharing Christ with people on the streets so that they wouldn't have the same misfortune that I had. I mean, until somebody shared Christ with me on the street, I had never heard the gospel. And so I wanted to make sure they they had the opportunity to hear about Christ but people would bring up all these weird objections that they heard on some television show or they heard from, you know, uh, a religion professor. And these were so misinformed. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, if I become a scholar, then I can have a, a contrary voice to counter those things. Right. Um, I, I didn't understand that, you know, part of what makes the news is where you say something novel that nobody's ever said before. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes there are reasons why people haven't said certain things before and so, uh, but in any case, uh, it was it was partly also that passion for helping people understand why the message is true that um, that led to to my my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you talk about people are having strange objections and such, that's only got worse in the day of the internet here. <laughs> yes, you're fine though. Christ mythicism running rampant everywhere as if that's the hardest item out there or or the did I wear the, the New Testament you know was created at the Council of Nicaea <laughs> all this stuff is out there and like, this is stuff that the, that the scholars themselves are debating no no than that no yeah. and yeah people I guess on the internet if there's nobody to check them if it's not peer reviewed like scholarship People feel free to make up a lot of things, and then other people who find it convenient circulate mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. things thinking they're true. Yeah. Now, I also was thinking when you talk about the first people who share the gospel with you and about how you were asking questions about dinosaur bones, it reminded me that when I read through Hugh Ross's book, A Matter of Days, uh-huh. he said, I mean, endorsement, like if, if this book had been around in my earlier days, I might not have never become an atheist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if I said become an atheist because I, I didn't really start out as a theist per yeah. se, but yeah. It was something like that. Yeah. Your, your atheism would have been much shorter, let's say. Yes, yeah, that makes sense. Now, something else I would like to point out, and I think this is something important for our scholars or burgeoning scholars to learn and think about, especially those of us in the Christian field, is that we look at your resume here and it is extremely extremely impressive I know Gary Habermas has said something up. he doesn't know how you can write as quickly as you do and wishes he could do the same kind of thing I think but we see all this and yet I remember when you joined Facebook not too long ago one of the first things I saw was uh, pictures of you and your family and that was the first thing you wanted to share and 
I was talking to Jeremiah Johnson of the Spurs, and he said, you know, something I've always had to remember in ministry, family always comes first. Yes. Would you care to comment some on that? I mean, how, I mean how, how do you do with all the time that you spend writing and researching and still making sure family is your first priority? First, um, on Facebook, when I originally went on Facebook, it was... You know, I'd been holding out, holding out, holding out, and some old friends were trying to reach me on Facebook, and I found out about it, and I said, you know, I'll go on Facebook so I can catch up with my old friends. And my, my wife and my son said, don't worry about it. You know, it won't take that much time. But <laughs> once I was on Facebook, you know, uh, anyway, uh, I'll just say it's, it's uh, yeah, it's not just family photos now. But anyway, uh, but that's that's what I originally went on Facebook for. Um, in terms of making time, one of the things was I was actually single when I did a lot of the research. So um, my wife and I got married in 2002. Hmm. So we have not had... Um, and when we got married, what I wanted to do, you know, like people spend 40 hours a week in the office or something and then come home. I, I wanted to still put in my work time but keep that separate from my time with my family. Right. It was a little bit hard where we lived initially because we lived in an apartment on campus at the seminary where I taught. So, you know, work and family kind of blended together. You know, my, the uh, seminary students, uh, their their kids would play with, with my son, and, you know, we would, uh, you know, and, and he got to know basically the whole seminary community and so on. But... Um, but now, you know, we, we have a house, uh, which was unexpected for me, but we actually can afford it in the area where we're living now. And, uh, and so we, there's, there's more of a separation there, and it actually has probably been better for my brain. Mm-hmm. Although the commute is a bit, uh, I, I have to walk a bit further than just downstairs now. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to also let people know that normally, some of you might be wondering how I do things for the show, because... I'm working on my master's right now. I'm doing all the reading for that. Then I do all the reading, usually, that comes in with a show. Normally, if I have a guest on here, I have read their book. Craig Keener's four-volume commentary on Acts is an exception to this rule. Even Tim McGrew told me that he raised his eyebrows when he uh, heard how big the book was. But then, I, I really like the line that he said, but he told me that we asked you how big why it was so big that you just smiled and he said Craig Keener had a face just like an angel and he just said God has just given us so much evidence yeah yeah now let's see about the book of Acts first off uh, do do you come down on the side of Lucan authorship at this point yes okay why is that well the same person clearly wrote both volumes. There's very little debate about that. And in the second volume, there's a section, uh, actually a couple sections, where the author says we. Right. Uh, starting in 1610, going through chapter 20, the author says, uh, well, actually starting in chapter 16 and ending in chapter 16 and picking up again uh, in chapter 20, the author says uh, we. And anywhere else in ancient literature where you find that, where it's a historical work, you find, you know, we means we. It means I and whoever else was there. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And the objections to that, I, I find, are the kind of objections that only people studying New Testament and isolated from the rest of studying the ancient world would, would say. I mean, I, I don't understand how... We wouldn't do this with any other historical document from the ancient world. We, we would recognize we means the author was present. Mm-hmm. And um, the, main, the main objection that's been raised against that, that people say, well, we can't mean we because this author obviously didn't know Luke very well because his theology uh, that he presents for Paul is very different from Paul's theology. Well, obviously, Luke and Paul, you know, Luke and Paul have their own emphases. Nobody's saying that Paul wrote the book of Acts. Yeah. But at the same time, the, the comparisons that are made are just... Uh, there's there's one article a few decades ago by Philip Fielhauer that is particularly cited in this. And the, the objections that he raises are not at all, I, I find, convincing. One of his biggest arguments, probably his biggest argument, is that Luke's view of the law and Paul keeping the law for himself is very different from Paul's view of the law in his own letters. Mm -hmm. And yet that argument, which is still sometimes cited by by Acts scholars, (laughs) has long been discounted by by Pauline scholars since the, you know, not everybody buys into the new perspective, but pretty much everybody today recognizes that Paul wasn't anti-Jewish and Paul wasn't anti-law. And that Paul himself may have kept some of this as customs or to identify with his people or for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the objections are very weak. And and also the we material is the most detailed material in, in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. Uh, the entire final quarter of Acts is, is narrated, it's we material, it's narrated in mu- much greater detail than any of the other sections, which makes sense you know, for, for eyewitness material. And some people say, well, uh, this is just Luke quoting a source. But Luke says in the beginning of his gospel that he had lots of sources available. He doesn't, he doesn't leave we's or eyes in any of the others. Why would he become an inept editor at this point and at this point only? And, and then finally, you know, if you, if you look at who the we could have been, you look in Paul's letters, you see who was with him when he got to Rome. And you know, who, who else could this have been? Somebody who's not named separately in the book of Acts, but, mm-hmm. but could have been his traveling companion. To me, it looks like it comes down to about two people, Luke and Titus. And for whatever, for whatever reason, um, Titus doesn't seem to be named in, in, Luke, in, in the book of Acts. But, um, but the early church preserved the tradition that it was Luke the beloved physician from Colossians 4.14. And why would they make up a non-apostle? Somebody is non-prominent in the the New Testament elsewhere as as Luke. And, you know, these are the the last kind of things. I mean, if you look elsewhere in antiquity, authorship is the last kind of thing people would, would have forgotten. So I think the evidence very strongly, internally and externally, points to Luke, and I think it's a no-brainer. Um, I, I mean, I understand, you know, the, the scholars are divided on this, uh, on this point, but I think it's a no-brainer that it was, it was uh, clearly Paul's traveling companion, and a no-brainer that in all likelihood, uh, very, very likely, maybe 90% or something, I would say it's, it's Luke. 
Tim McGrew has told me there's a book out, and I can't remember the author, but it was written probably over a hundred so years ago about Acts 27, the account of the shipwreck. Yes. And that, and that, that was an account that was written by someone who says, the person who wrote this account had to be someone who was present during the event, but at the same time is not familiar with terminology about boats and such. <laughs> yeah, that's James Smith, and every everybody, well, pretty much everybody who treats Acts as historical follows that uh, follows his work there's also been some newer work that's been done uh, it wasn't specifically done on acts but uh, some newer work on uh, navigation and mercantile ships and so on uh, in antiquity done by uh, nautical archaeologists and I, I was able to draw on some of their work uh, Mark Wilson who is a um, works with archaeology in in Turkey um, pointed me toward that material and uh, I, I have it cited in, in Acts 27 mm-hmm. now when it comes to the authorship and we have Luke there down but when did he write this what's your idea for when Acts was written and why do you date it that way <clears throat> dating dating of gospels is only probably slightly easier than dating people. Uh, back when I was single, I, I just didn't do that because it was just too hard. But anyway, um, but dating dating the Gospels and Acts, it's not as easy as like dating Paul's letters because, you know, they're talking about things in the past rather than the present. So it's not always easy to, to figure out dates. In the case of Mark, the consensus dates are usually between 64 and 75 on average about 70 um most conservative scholars date mark around 64 i think that fits the the setting but you know that's all open to debate we don't have the same strong kind of evidence we have for some other things but in the case of in the case of luke's uh work it's you know he he draws on mark uh, he corrects some of mark's grammar so obviously luke is after mark whenever we date mark um, again, I date Mark around 64. But in the case of Acts, some people have said, well, because it, it doesn't end with Paul's death, <clears throat> then it must have been written before Paul's death. Um, but then you could say, well, um, there, there are a lot of things that that end before the... I mean, the Gospels and Acts, there are a lot of things that that um, they could have narrated. Somebody, uh, actually Richard Purvo, whom I think you were planning to ask me about later, but he he makes a good point on this, you know, for people to say, well, it doesn't talk about the year 70 or it doesn't talk about Paul's death. He says, well, you know, here's this one writer who wrote after World War I, but he's narrating something in history that happened before World War One, he never talks about World War One. So therefore, he must have written before World War One. And he says that's not a good argument, and and I would agree with that. Um, Luke is not writing a biography of Paul per se; he's writing the history of early Christian mission. Mm-hmm. But having said that, I think there are other reasons to argue for an early date. Now, when I say early date, it's in contrast to what Dr. Purvo argues for a second century date. And, and some other scholars argue for second century date. The majority of scholars hold to a first century date, but um, since you know, in the last 10 years, a number of scholars have moved to a second century date based on 
some other uh, some other arguments uh, based on not having early manuscripts of Luke Acts and, and so on. But my my response is the the final quarter of Acts seems to function, and I, and I figured this out as I was working through Acts. I, I actually started the book not thinking this, but Acts final quarter seems to function apologetically for Paul. That is, it raises a defense, uh, an explanation for why Paul is in Roman custody, and you know, if you're dating it after Paul's death, for why why Paul eventually died in Roman custody, although it ends with a happy precedent rather than with the sad news. And yet, the, the, the main charge against Paul in Acts 24, I believe it's verse 5, is that he stirs up sedition. Uh, he, he, he causes riots. Now, that was a capital charge in the Roman Empire. And that was something pretty much everybody looked down upon. Why would Luke report all these riots in the book of Acts that happened in places where Paul preached? All these mob scenes where Paul preached. Why would he record that if he's writing an apologetic for Paul? You know, if it were generations later, he wouldn't have to record that. But if it's within living memory of when these events happened, there are still people in Ephesus who remember the riots. There are still people in in Jerusalem, well, probably not Jerusalem, but still people in uh, other places where the riots occurred. Philippi or um, at Corinth, there was a mob scene. There wasn't actually a full-fledged riot, but... Um, we just have a number of these going through the book of the book of Acts, and it seems to me that Luke has to explain these, show why Paul was innocent, rather than simply saying Paul was innocent because there was still living memory of these riots. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the the historical details are so good that Luke would have to have either a very good source or have been there to interview witnesses himself. And if you look at what Luke says in Luke chapter 1, and you, if you take the we as being an eyewitness, which I do, I think that's the, the, the only way that you would take it if you're reading it like other ancient historiography. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's it's got to be first century. Mm-hmm. And I personally, I think that there's enough of the the vividness there, I, I would date it earlier. Uh, I, probably I dated in the early 70s, mm-hmm. but again, that's that's all debated. Now, you talked about uh, Richard Purvo. Um, he's come out with an interesting theory on the Book of Acts that's more along the lines of, sort of like a romantic fiction, as it were. So what, could you explain what his theory is and what exactly you think the problem with it is? Sure. Um, now, in saying this, uh, I do want to preface this by saying I, I respect Richard's knowledge of ancient novels, and uh, I, I appreciate his his knowledge of that. He's a, he's a great scholar on that and making comparisons with Acts. But some of the comparisons, like for instance, he says, well, novels are entertaining; they have action scenes, they have adventures. So does Acts. That's that's true. But if you read ancient historiography you'll find the same thing. If you read ancient biography, you'll find the same thing. Ancient writers, uh, more than more than many of us today, 
actually wanted their works to be interesting to their <laughs> audiences. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, and in terms in terms of adventures, well, you know, sure, the book of Acts includes lots of Paul's adventures, but if you read the list of his sufferings in Second Corinthians chapter 11, around verses 23 through 28 or so, 29, uh, well, actually, you go on from being let down from a basket from the wall, that would, you know, going on through 32. If you read Second Corinthians 11, Paul was in so many adventures, <laughs> so many sufferings, Acts doesn't narrate half of them. So Luke is not is not um, making up adventures for Paul. He's he's actually being very selective in in what he reports. the the kinds of um, the kinds of connections that Richard Prevost notes we also have with historical literature. I mean, people often do that with the, the shipwreck at, at Malta and the. Uh, the storm at sea. They say, well, you have these in novels, but you have them in historical works too. You have them in eyewitness accounts from ancient letters. Yeah, it's all over the place. Uh, it, further, in terms of uh, it being a romance, now he's clarified his position. Uh, he today he says, uh, with the consensus of the majority of scholars who recognize that Acts is a historical monograph or a historical work, it's not. It's not a novel. He says, I never said it was a novel. I just said. It can be compared with novels because they're popular level works. So uh, that, okay, he's, he's nuanced it some, but he still says there's a lot of fiction in it. Now, the comparison with novels, some other people have followed through on it more. Um, romance, most ancient novels were romances, whether heterosexual or homosexual romance. They were, you know, Petronius did a, um, a, a man and a boy. But usually it was a, a man and a woman, or a young man, a young woman, and they have all these adventures, but the, the focus of it is romance. Mm -hmm. That feature seems notoriously lacking in, in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what Richard Pervo wanted to do was say it's like a historical romance. That is a, a fiction about uh, a, a genuine historical person. The problem with that is that you don't have any examples in antiquity, so far as I can see. I mean, you have a few examples of historical romances. They're, they're a small minority. But when you have any historical romances or any historical fiction in antiquity, it was never of characters from within living memory, mm -hmm. from the past century or so. I mean, even even a second century date would be early second century date, which is when Richard Purvo would date it, is, is way too early for somebody to be writing a, a novel about Paul. Late second century, that's the heyday of novels, and it's also the heyday of, um, you know, apocryphal gospels, apocryphal acts, and so on. Like the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Yeah, like the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Another reason for for not seeing it as a, as a romance or... Um, or historical fiction is that there are just too many correspondences with external history. When we do have historical fiction, the writers didn't go research things for those. I mean, they took common knowledge, but you don't have them going into the interior of Asia Minor to, to you know, narrate stories about what happened in these towns, and you get so many of the details correct. Yeah. 
we we could say for instance that if you went to England today you might be able to find some places talked about in the Harry Potter novels but you're not going to go into great detail as to what you're going to find at King's Crossing yeah it, yeah and and you know if today historical novelists will do more work yeah. uh, to try to make it you, you know so you actually learn some history along the way but Ancient historical novelists, that was not their agenda. They didn't actually do research to get their information, quite in contrast to biographies and histories. So what genre would you place X in? Well, on this I can say I, I am with the majority opinion of scholars. And, uh, you know, some of the other things that, that the we narrator is uh, is actually a genuine eyewitness, that's also a majority opinion. Um, but in terms of the genre of, of acts, it's normally regarded as a work of history, mm -hmm. uh, historical monograph. Second leading view is biography. Right. And either of those views mm -hmm. has more proponents than any of the, than probably all the other views put together. Mm -hmm. The historical uh, monograph is the, is the leading view. Mm -hmm. And there are, there are really strong reasons for that, not least all the in information that we can check with historical records, and it actually, mm -hmm. you know, it actually works. Yeah. When Colin Hemar wrote a book a few years ago about the Book of Acts and its Hellenistic setting, he went through and he had a fine tooth comb. He found all these tiny, tiny, minute things that Luke seemed to get incredibly accurate. Did yes. you find that when you were doing this? Yes. Yeah, I think Colin Colin Hemer has over a hundred pages of of that kind of material. Um, now, on this, I was probably more concise because I wasn't writing my whole book on that. But yeah, I have a I have a couple chapters on that in the introduction to the commentary. Also, I mean, some of these are things that he mentioned. Some of these are other things that I found just as I was working through the book of Acts. Um, but you have things like Felix, the Roman governor under whom Paul was first tried in, in um, uh, Judea. The, the, Roman, the Roman governor had three different wives at different points. The wife that he had at this point was Drusilla, the daughter of King Agrippa I. Acts gets that right. I mean, Acts could have mixed up his wife. Acts could have not known of his wife, but gets it just right in just the right time. And his successor was Festus. Acts gets that right. And Festus acts in character, the same way we see him acting in Josephus. Agrippa I acts the same way we see him acting in Josephus. Agrippa II and his sister Bernice act the same way we, we find them acting in Josephus. Now, some people say, well, Luke must be dependent on Josephus, but actually, if Josephus is narrating genuine historical information, there's no reason that Luke has to depend on Josephus, whom I believe wrote after Luke, uh, and, and his work wouldn't have been widely available to everybody just as soon as he wrote it anyway. Um, you know, if, if there actually was a Felix, if there actually was a Festus, and so on, then it makes sense that Luke could have access to that information by being there, just like Josephus could, but his, uh, but they they corroborate each other on these points. When you talk about him getting these kind of details right, 
there are some people who look at what he says about Judas and Judas of Galilee in, in Acts 5 and say, yeah, but Luke got these dates wrong, didn't he? Well, we, we say he got them wrong based on a comparison with Josephus. Mm-hmm. And Josephus actually, you know, usually he got things right, but Josephus made a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, and he's actually accused of a lot more mistakes than Luke is, partly because Josephus is a lot longer. So, you know, in that in that case, it's Josephus' word against Luke's. Mm-hmm. Now, in most cases, I think we can make a, a strong argument that Luke is correct. In this case, I think what what you would end up with, keep in mind that this is one of the speeches in Acts, mm-hmm. and the way ancient historiography was written, ancient historiography had to be correct on events, had to be correct on, like, if you had, um, if you said something happened, it had to have happened. If you if you had a speech as much as possible, although Josephus sometimes doesn't do this, but usually, normally, what ancient historians would do, they would try to write the speech as convincingly as what the person would have said as best as they knew. If they had actual material, they'd use the material. Otherwise, they'd write up the speech for the person. It's a different way of writing history than the way we write it today. Because today we'd say, well, they might have said this, they might have said that, but, you know, we might give levels of probability, whereas back then they take the most probable reconstruction and that's what they do. So if, if as, as many scholars think, Luke gets it wrong there, keep in mind that it's in a speech, it's behind closed doors, the apostles aren't there to hear it, and so it's the one kind of place where you would expect a historian to take the liberty that was actually available to ancient historians with regard to that. Now, if you don't believe that Luke got it wrong, uh, you know, it was Gamaliel's speech, and, you know, Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel, so Paul would have understood, you know, what was, he would have known the kind of things that that Gamaliel said. So, um, personally, I think that what Gamaliel probably did, he probably talked about revolutionaries, uh, compared Jesus to, to revolutionaries. And then what Luke has available to him is just this comparison with revolutionaries. So he picks the best known revolutionaries to mention. And that was well within the genre of ancient historiography. So if we're judging Acts by the standard of modern historiography, we might say, oh, you're not allowed to do that. If we're judging Acts by the genre that then existed, well, you know, Luke actually was one of the most accurate among ancient historians. Uh, he, I, I would say he, his accuracy is comparable to Suetonius or, or Tacitus. Mm-hmm. Well, when you talk about Josephus, I'd like to read some from uh, a favorite of the Internet atheist, and that's uh, Richard Carrier. Not sure if you're familiar. You're laughing, so I'm guessing you're familiar with him right now. Well, I, I, I've heard of him. I actually cited him once in the commentary where I thought he made a good point, and so I, I cited him there. But well, yeah, go. This is where he starts with his, uh, with his chapter on the evidence of Acts in his book on the history of Jesus while we might have reason for doubt, and I'm going to leave out stuff in uh, parentheses for the most part. It says, The book of Acts has been all but discredited as a work of apologetic historical fiction, which yeah. he points to Purvo. Nevertheless, it's offer, and he's got in parentheses traditionally Luke, May he's, have derived. But by the way, he's exaggerating Purvo. <laughs> yeah, may have a may have derived some of its material or ideas from earlier traditions, written or or, 
but the latter would still be extremely unreliable and wholly unverifiable. Thus, our best hope is to posit some written sources, even though their reliability would be almost as hard to verify, especially, again, as we don't have them. So we cannot distinguish what they actually said from what Luke added, left out, or changed. Then he says this, which some of you, what you uh, said about mine. But that project has not gone well. Really, only one underlying historical source has been confirmed with any probability, and that's Josephus, who said nothing about Christ or Christianity. Luke simply used him for background material. What do you think about that? I think that's taking the most skeptical reading possible and then exaggerating it even further. In, in terms of Luke using Josephus, the one place that, that those scholars who think that Luke used Josephus and therefore date him after 90, the one place that they are, are sure that Luke used Josephus is the point about Thutis, which, as we noted, is a place where he actually disagrees with them. So if why would we say that Luke is dependent on Josephus for this if Luke actually says something quite different from what Josephus says? I mean, in terms of the sequence and the, and the date of Thutis, further... Uh, I, I should have I should have taken these one by one because I, being an absent-minded professor, the things uh, slip from my memory which things to respond to because there's just so many of them there. But yeah, I don't think that's a very strong argument at all. Do you want me to repeat anything here? Or? Sure, sure. Repeat repeat whichever ones you want me to respond to. Well, first off, I'm sure you necessarily agree, and so do most scholars. They but. Acts has all been all but discredited as a work of apologetic historical fiction. That's nonsense. Uh, <laughs> but actually, the majority of Acts scholars think that Acts is a work of ancient historiography. And, you know, Richard Purvo in his most recent work seems to, seems to kind of go both ways. It's historical fiction, but it's, it's history. But he wants historical fiction to be history. Really, I see them as quite separate genres. But again, ancient historiography was not written the way modern historiography is. I mean, you could flesh out scenes, you could flesh out speeches and so on to, to try to achieve the greatest verisimilitude. Because if you just say, the person said this and you summarize it, that's not verisimilitude. So they, they try to make it the most like the way it happened. That was just the way they wrote back then. But we should note that even in that case, most of these historians, they have these long speeches. Luke's speeches are concise. They're not, they're not long like these, these speeches in other histories. Now, that may be partly because he's writing a monograph. He's doing it in one volume. But it means that Luke didn't expand the sources the same way that some others did. Uh, and anyway, but most scholars do think that, that Luke is a work of ancient historiography. Now, I think we would agree that he probably did use some written and oral sources, because he used written sources for his gospel. Yes. But when it comes to the oral sources, I mean, Carrier tells us those would have been completely unreliable and unverifiable. Well, you know, that that's not a very good argument. In, in Luke chapter 1, Luke tells us that many had undertaken to write about these things, and he also talks about the oral tradition that was passed on by the eyewitnesses. Now, the normal way that a historian would work was to go consult eyewitnesses or consult whoever was closest to the matters. And if, if the we narrative shows us that Luke was indeed present, I mean, part of the time that Luke was present was up to two years in Judea 
from Acts 24:27, Paul spends up to two years in Judea. Um, the we has been with him up, up until his arrest in Jerusalem. And then the we is still with him when he leaves Caesarea uh, in, the, in the voyage ultimately to Rome in Acts chapter 27. So uh, the, the up to two years that are spent in Caesarea, Luke was, was still there. So Luke had plenty of time to talk with eyewitnesses for his gospel. Mm-hmm. And as for the book of Acts, I mean, you know, uh, one of the people he met was Manasson, an old disciple in, in Acts chapter 21. He also met Philip, the evangelist, in Acts 21. And, and he's also got Paul as a source. I mean, he spent all this time with Paul. Obviously, he's going to know some of the things about the early church. When we look at ancient biographies and ancient historiography, finding something within a generation of the, of the writer uh, is, is fairly rare. You know, often they're writing about people several generations before or even more. And the historians themselves will admit that their information is better for the most recent material than it is for the older material. And they'll talk about how they checked with eyewitnesses. Often they'll also talk about various written works that were already written contemporary with the time. So, you know, to take Luke as, as, uh, you know, his, his sources, his oral sources is unreliable. I mean, again, if this is the we narrator, and if he's writing, you know, he's writing, well, depending on the date you give it, the, the majority of scholars have dated Luke between 70 and 90. Um, that, that was Pervo's estimate before he wrote his book. I think more argue for second century now, but when he first wrote his book, in his summary of majority views, it was the majority were between 70 and 90. Second leading view was in the 60s. Third leading view was in the 90s. And the smallest view was in the second century. So if we're, if we're looking at between 70 and 90, and we're looking at the time that, that Luke was alive, um, and Luke consulted, had access to eyewitnesses, you know, these are eyewitnesses who've had the chance to rehearse these things. These are these are very important events in their lives, mm-hmm. and and the early Christian movement was very much into preaching and into testimony. So these are these are things. I mean, I remember things from 40 years ago. Uh, I'm, I'm 55 right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember things from when I was 15. It, some of them in great detail, like my conversion. Yep. Uh, things things that are very important and things that I've recited over and over. Of course, I'm going to remember those things. I'd uh, I'd say the same kind of thing, except I'm 35, so it'd be very hard <laughs> to remember things from 40 years ago. But I, I did just start writing a work that's a bit autobiographical, and there are a lot of things you do remember when you look back and such. Now, something else that Carrier says I see later on is that uh, he does think another source that we have for Acts, and he gets this from Dennis McDonald, is Homer. That the stories in Acts or Homer reworked, and it looks like you're laughing there a little bit again. What, what are you thinking right now? Well, I love Dennis McDonald because he's very, both he and Richard Purvo are very creative. They don't just say things that people have said before. But almost nobody, except some of Dennis McDonald's students, actually agrees with Dennis McDonald on that. Now, um, as, uh, as Richard Hayes at Duke pointed out, one time in a, in a discussion between them, he says, look, we've got all these marked citations, these, these uh, citations specifically from the Old Testament that are, are labeled as such, that are direct quotes. 
that seems to be the primary source. We don't have any case of that with Homer. We do have a few Greek Greek uh, allusions, uh, allusions to Greek poets, like in Acts seventeen twenty eight, and I find you know I find convincing an allusion to Socrates in Acts seventeen nineteen, and and, and uh, some allusions to Euripides uh, Bacchants. I, I find I find those, and a lot of scholars find those, but those are like kind of you know nodding. Uh, tipping the the uh, his Luke's Greek audience off to the fact, well, yeah, you know this in the Greek context, this is what the Lord does that's even greater than than what you've heard about these other things. But some of the things, and and I I use Homer, I use the whole range of ancient sources. Um, you know, I, I use the novels, I, I use them for literary comparisons, I use them for uh, background of understanding customs and so on. But I think when you get the whole range of ancient literature, it's not these these particular allusions to Homer that uh, Dennis McDonald's finds most scholars don't find convincing. And again, that's not to denigrate him; it's just to say most scholars don't find that convincing. And I I, I am among them, and you know I've read Homer. I read Homer before my conversion. I, I you know loved loved Homer when I was a kid. But, um, yeah. So I'm guessing you think most of these parallels that you see, and probably the same kinds that you see in his work on Homeric epics and the Gospel of Mark, are really forced and strained, kind of making the text say what you want it to mean so it can fit an idea. Yeah. And, you know, you can understand why he would be looking for Homeric allusions, because that was the most widely read work in in uh, Greek antiquity. I mean, the, yeah. the Greeks... Greeks read that more than anything else but Luke is still writing to people for whom the Bible uh, the the Old Testament Mm -hmm. is their uh, primary canon Mm -hmm. Homer is not Mm -hmm. so you know it wouldn't bother me if we did find some some allusions to Homer because you you can you can write something in such a way you're you're recounting what happens but you write it in such a way that it relates to something else uh, you know, you kind of tip the reader off uh, with a literary illusion, and they and they they nod their head and say, "Oh yeah, I got that." But I just don't see the particular ones that that he makes normally. Yeah, yeah N.T. Wright once even said something along the lines that the Homer was kind of the Old Testament for the ancient world. It was. It was. Yeah. If, if the Greeks had a canon, Homer would have been the canon for them. Now, now, when we go through the book of Acts, one of my favorite stories that Christians can like to read about is the appearance to Paul on the Damascus Road. I hesitate to call it a conversion experience because there are some troubling statements about some refer to the call of Paul, for instance. But the problem is, when we look at this account, we have three of them, and they all seem very, very different. I mean, is this a problem that the account of Acts is contradicting itself, or what? No, that's the that well. Uh, let me let me approach it from two angles. Remind me that the second angle to approach it from is to talk about the genre of ancient historiography again. But the first point, I mean, the wording, uh, the direct quotes are almost the same. Uh, an, another issue is that ancient writers often would recount something that was very important multiple times. They'd often leave out certain details in one of the recountings 
so that they could, uh, you know, that the, they knew they were going to recount again later. So you would read them in a complementary way. The other, the, the uh, genre of ancient historiography, remember, they did have some some freedom to fill in some details. And so you can have you can have the writers using that kind of uh, freedom in, in something like this. The fact the fact that Luke has these differences shows us just, you know, he's writing this kind of historiography. Uh, the same with the closing of Luke chapter 24, the beginning of Acts chapter 1. Luke is not hiding this. This is just the way Luke writes like an ancient historian writes. He's got certain liberties in how he tells the story. Now, some of the things that people see as contradictions, it's just you know, one account includes more than the other. For example, it's, it's only in Acts 26 that uh, Paul recounts that Jesus said, you know, you're kicking against the goads. And it's very interesting because it, it's probably an allusion back to uh, Euripides' Bacchans, uh, which uh, also seems to be alluded to when, uh, when Paul's teacher, Gamaliel, says it's hard for you to kick against, uh, sorry, says uh, we don't want to be found fighting against, against God. Mm-hmm. And that, they're probably an allusion to the same passage. And so uh, literate Greek hearers of the story, they wouldn't, they wouldn't actually have to have even read Euripides, but they've heard the story or they've heard other allusions to that story, uh, even in Jewish sources. So, you know, they, they could catch that. Now, uh, Paul recounts that when he's talking in front of Festus, Agrippa, and Berenice, all of whom were, would have been very literate in, in Greek literature, and certainly Agrippa and Berenice were very literate in Greek literature. They would have, they would have caught the illusion right away. So, I mean, Luke knows what he's doing. He's not just accidentally putting these things in there, but this is, this is deliberate in a, in a good way of writing historiography. He actually does it a whole lot less than most ancient historians did, because historians and other kinds of ancient writers, uh, even, even in their letters often, they would, they would quote classical Greek literature a lot, sometimes classical Roman literature a lot, to show how smart they were. And Luke is, that's not Luke's agenda. Well, let's talk about one other area that people often say is contradictory. In Acts 9, it says, The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. And when you get to Acts 22, it says, My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of whom was speaking to me. And uh, then when it shows up in Acts 26, I'm having a hard time finding it right now, but I think it's something different even there. What did, what happened with Luke, with with Paul and his companions? Did they see, did they hear, what's going on? Scholars have, what scholars have long been doing with that is saying, well, you know, the Greek form of the of the wording with the dative and so on. In in one passage, it refers to hearing a sound, and the other, it refers to hearing with comprehension. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not persuaded that the Greek has to mean that, but certainly, the the semantic range of akuo of hearing in Greek does allow for that. It does allow for one to mean the one and the other to mean the other. And if readers read it in a complementary way, they would put it together. Now, if 
if someone still says, well, this is this can't be reconciled, that's fine too, because within the genre of ancient historiography, which is again how we have to describe Luke, we can't we can't evaluate what he's doing based on a genre that didn't yet exist. Mm-hmm. In ancient historiography, those kinds of details people would consider that nitpicking. I mean, the only the only time somebody would jump on you for you know that kind of slight variation was if they were deliberately out to get you. Historians did stuff like that all the time. Mm-hmm. So what do you think Paul exactly saw on his conversion experience, or his car experience? Because, I mean, in First Corinthians 9, he refers to it as a heavenly vision. I mean, was there something subjective to you, or do you think he really saw something there that anyone else could have seen? The word, the word that's translated vision like in 1 Corinthians 15, is not really limited to <clears throat> subjective visions. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as selective revelation, we have that sometimes in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Like Daniel and his friends, they get part, but they, you know, it's they're they're terrified. But Daniel's the only one who gets the full the full revelation. In Acts chapter nine, his you have some selective revelation. I mean, obviously everybody there something happens but Paul's the one who gets the fullness of it you have the same thing in Acts chapter uh, Acts chapter 10 with selective revelation to Cornelius and to Peter and then bringing them together as you have in Acts chapter 9 where you have Paul and Ananias both getting complementary visions and and bringing it together um, so that Luke is reinforcing it by showing independent experiences that are um, mutually supportive. At the same time, in Acts chapter chapter nine, the language that that Luke uses it's it's language that he often uses for an angelic or other kind of revelation. Uh, the light flashing around him is very similar to what you have in Luke chapter two, with um, with Jesus' birth and the the revelation of the angels to the shepherds, and then they see the whole sky full of heavenly hosts so it was something where God could reveal to one person there or God could choose to reveal it to everybody there mm-hmm. do, do you think that uh, Paul really did see Jesus bodily though or? well that's the impression we get from Paul's own writing mm-hmm. in 1 Corinthians 15 I mean he doesn't talk about that the you know, in Second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about visions and revelations, mm-hmm. and, and you know he doesn't even know with himself whether some of those were in the body or out of the body mm-hmm. for himself. But in First Corinthians 15, he's talking about resurrection appearances, appearances of the risen Lord, and he's very particular in First Corinthians 15 in terms of speaking of it, of the resurrection as the resurrection of of soma of mm-hmm. of the body. Right. So it's it's a different kind of Body. It's it's a body fitted for the life of the spirit rather than for our, our present uh, kind of life, but it's 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 certainly bodily. So Paul's own writings actually convince us that he he saw Jesus bodily and that this was unusual. We we could point to Robert Gundry's work, for instance, on the use of soma, which has been foundational to show that this would have been seen as a physical body for Paul. Yeah. And uh, and I'm, and, you know, Mike Lacona has done a lot of work on this in his book on the resurrection of Jesus, around page 400 or so, 
and he did the study of physical or spiritual and says he yeah, has the physical bodily. Yes. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. Right now, I've got Dr. Craig Keener with me. He's talking about the Book of Acts and his four-volume commentary on the series. But if you're listening next week here, we're going to have with me. I'm actually going to have two guests that are going to be on the show. We're going to be talking about a book on the Book of Job. This is a really interesting book to read and I know when I was going through some times of suffering in my life I somehow thought you should read the book of Job well maybe that wasn't the best idea maybe I I should have been reading other books instead because we're going to be talking about that book and the the book is called simply How to Read Job. I I found it to be a very eye-opening look at the book of Job. And I'm going to have two guests that are going to be on to talk about that. One of them is uh, Dr. Tremper Lohman. He is one who has never been on the show before, so it's going to be very good to have him. In fact, I just got done reading a book of his that he wrote with Dan Allender, but I picked up at ETS. We broke a God Loves Sex. Maybe we can get him and Dan Allender to come on sometime and talk about that book as well. But the other guest, he's going to be one of our favorites that we've had on here, at least from my perspective, and he's one that has been on twice before, talking about two of his books on The Lost World. And so that second guest is going to be someone I think Craig Keener is very familiar with, and that's John Walton will be there. So it's going to be Trimple Longman and John Walton, and I see Craig Keener giving me a big thumbs up here talking about how to read Job. You, you really like John Walton a lot, don't you? Yeah, well, John and I actually are partner editors, so to speak, right. of the forthcoming um, NIV Cultural Background Study Bible that mm-hmm. should be out sometime in 2016. Mm-hmm. John did the Old Testament, and I did the New Testament. Mm-hmm. You know, it, this is definitely a Bible that is going to be going on my wish list here. <laughs> so next Saturday, we are going to have John Wharton and Trimper Longman coming on, talking about their book, How to Read Job. But now let's get back to the book of Acts with Craig Keener. Now, uh, Dr. Keener, what about the, the idea some people have that uh, what Paul went through on his uh, con- on his car experience? That could have been something like, say, an epileptic seizure. Paul probably had epilepsy and so he seizured and started having all these visions and such. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? And it looks like you're laughing again. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in terms of having having visions because of um, brain, you know, some, something in your nervous system, um, probably most of your hearers have heard about Harriet Tubman. Mm-hmm. Harriet Tubman, I think, was hit hit by a brick or something like that uh, when she was when she was younger, when she was a slave, when she escaped, sometimes she would go into she she would go into trances. She'd have these visions, but often the Lord would speak to her during these visions about you know which way to go, and because of that, she would often avoid running into um, people who were out hunting for the escaped slaves and so on. She led three hundred slaves on various missions to their freedom from the South. And later she led Union troops on reconnaissance missions. She never lost a single person. 
I mean, you read about that in the Bible where, uh, you know, they, they have these battles and they didn't lose anybody. And you say, ah, it can't happen. Well, it happened with Harriet Tubman. And it was partly because of these visions. And, hey, so what if it, <laughs> if it uh, a hit on her head affected that? But in any case, the, the, the things that Paul had revealed to him, I mean, again, in, in Acts chapter 9, you have an independent corroboration with Ananias where he also gets a vision telling him that, that Paul has had this encounter. That, um, what, what I'm saying is that even if you did try to explain it with recourse to some naturalistic solution, it's not going to work purely on naturalistic grounds. Mm-hmm because we just have too many other corroborations. What do you think about the change of Saul's name to Paul? Some of them, some people think this is like a sort of a conversion account, as it were, with Abraham being changed to Abraham and things of that sort. But that, that's probably not really what's going on there, is it? No, because his name starts being uh, named as Paul in Acts 13.9. So it's, you know, chapters after his conversion, many years after his conversion. Um, Paul is, is a Roman citizen. He would have the trianomena, the three Roman names, as part of his name. Right. But a Jewish person also would would often have a local Jewish name to go along with it. Uh, and often it would be a name that kind of sounded like or meant something similar to the other one. In this case, sounded like uh, Paulus versus... Shaul. Uh, and so it makes sense. We know from Paul's own writings that his name, uh, well, that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. So it makes sense that he'd be named after a famous Benjamite king in the book of Acts, which doesn't even mention that he was a Benjamite. And also, when he was in Jerusalem, going by his Roman name probably wouldn't have been as much to his advantage as it was when he got out into more Romanized areas. Once Paul gets to Cyprus and the governor of Cyprus, and here this guy's name is Sergius Paulus, um, which is a family name that's attested for people of that class, uh, actually in the in the place where Paul went to next. Paul starts going by his his Roman name because he's in an area where it makes more sense. He's going to be trying to reach Gentiles, which is what God called him to do earlier. So it doesn't it doesn't have to do with this conversion. Rather, it has to do with him contextualizing to reach a different group of people. Uh, I've even heard that one of the names that he would have, since it would be a three-part name, that would have, would have been the most important name he would have had that would have given him the highest honor. And we don't even know what that name is because he never used it. He uses one that would probably give him the lowest honor. Is that right? Well, normally... Most often, people will go by their cognomen, mm-hmm. and uh, Paulus would be his cognomen. In in the other cases we know of people with that name, they were Roman citizens, and uh, especially when they were, if if they were Jewish, uh, you know, they would go by their cognomen. So, I, I think it's just uh, just the normal name he would go by. Mm-hmm. Now, why is it that you think? that uh, we don't see any mention of the epistles of Paul in the book of Acts. And why, why wouldn't Luke ever sit down and say, hey, you know what, Paul's writing all these awesome letters the whole time too. I think that Luke, because he has the, the living tradition of 
you know, talking with eyewitnesses, of traveling with Paul himself, why cite the letters? He's, you know, I think he probably knew about the letter to, to Philippi, for example, since, you know, I think Luke had spent time in Philippi, and uh, Luke is with Paul when he writes Colossians. Uh, on, well, I, I believe he wrote Colossians, and uh, and so on. So I think that Luke knew of some of Paul's letters, but that that to Luke was not the most important aspect of Paul's ministry. What he said in person was greater than the letters. Today, because what we have left of Paul is the letters, that's what we gravitate towards. But Luke didn't have the same limitation that we do. Now let's uh, talk some about the things that we think are of great apologetic significance in the book of Acts. One that uh, comes to mind immediately is one of the most certain facts I think we have that we use it to chronologize the book of Acts, and that's the appearance before Gallo. Yeah. Yes. Can can you tell us some about that and why it's so important? Sure. Gallio was the brother of um, the famous philosopher Seneca, mm-hmm. uh, son of Seneca the orator, and Gallio. Uh, there's there's some some debate, but there's an inscription. There, there's some debate about the exact year that that he would have been there, but either 51 or 52. Um, and, and Gallio didn't serve out his full term because he fell sick in Corinth and uh, left part of the way through his term. So it narrows it down to like a one or two year period that corresponds when Paul was there before Gallio. That would be around 51, 52, somewhere around there. So it, it lets us know when Paul was in Corinth. It also lets us know that Luke isn't making up officials' names, which he wouldn't dare do in any case, writing you know, at a time when people might might remember or might might be checking. Mm-hmm. Now, what are some of the other findings that you've come across? You mentioned one about Felix. What are some of the other things you've come across in your studies at, of the Book of Acts that said, you know, it, it's really incredible how Luke got this so right? Yeah. Uh, oh, I could I could I could list so many things. Some of the things are incidental details. Mm-hmm. For example. In um, in Greek, when you speak of a god, uh, you could call the god ha theos, the god masculine. Mm-hmm. If it's goddess, it would be he thea, uh, the the goddess. But in the case of Artemis, Ephesus, there are a few times in Acts chapter 19 where she is called he theos, that is the masculine form of god, with the feminine definite article. Now, that may look like a mistake, but actually we know from inscriptions in Ephesus that that was, that was in fact how she was often called locally in Ephesus. Also, when the official intervenes, I mean, you have different, different titles of different officials in different cities. You have uh, Politarchs in Thessalonica. Well, that was correct. Uh, the Stratagoi in, in Philippi, uh, that, that's that's correct there. The first and, man on the island in Malta. Yeah, uh, and 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 also in um, Acts 19, the the person who intervenes on Paul's behalf is the the grammatus, which means a scribe. You know, in villages they would have a coma grammatus, a village scribe. This was just somebody who helped illiterate people, you know, 
compose legal documents and so on. So it doesn't sound like a very high profession, but in the case of Ephesus, it meant the city clerk. It was the highest office in the entire city. So, so we have things like that. Um, just, just uh, you know, things like that could be multiplied. And even, even some of the internal evidence, like in the case of Acts chapter 20, uh, from, from one verse to another. Now, Acts 20 uses language that is very similar to what Paul wrote to his churches, which makes sense because this is one of Paul's only speeches to a Christian audience in the book of Acts. But again, historians, they just did their best to get the wording, but they, 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 they didn't really have verbatim transcripts of what people said. But in this case, you even have phrases that we know that Paul used in his letters. And that makes good sense. Steve Walton is even, you know, just, just comparing First Thessalonians, Paul's probably earliest letter, uh, or some people would say second earliest letter. You, you, have, um, you have all these correspondences. Well, that makes sense because it's a speech in the we narrative. It's where, it's where Luke actually heard him give this speech. And also, it's interesting, from, from one verse to another, you have uh, different Old Testament allusions that Luke doesn't spell out, spell out but they're, they're in sequence, from one, like one chapter of Ezekiel to the next, from Ezekiel uh, 30, 33, and then the next verse he's citing Ezekiel 34. So it's like, if you go back and you look at it, it's like, oh, Paul was probably expounding this text. Luke is giving us a summary. He doesn't tell us all this. But you can, you can sometimes see the connections behind it. Um, you, you have that in, in some other places as well. When you made the reference about what was going on in Ephesus and the riots and you talk about the city clerk coming forward, actually the persons I thought you were going to be talking about are ones that I think we used to say we have no record of their existence and now we've found some archaeological finds that point them and those are the Asiarchs that Paul knew. We've known of Asiarchs for for a long time. I I remember uh, an article actually written in the early 1900s about the Asiarchs, but uh, we have a lot more information about the Asiarchs now than we did back then. Mm-hmm. And the, the Asiarchs were known as, I mean, these were the leading officials of Asia. It was an office that was normally filled by the elite members of the province uh, early on, like in the early 1900s, scholars thought that these were the uh, priests of the emperor cult. And it's been shown in more recent decades that they they weren't necessarily that, uh, but some of them some of them were, but not all of them were. So you know you see these people are friends of Paul. What does that mean in Acts 19:31? They are friends, probably in the common Greek and Roman sense of being his his patrons or his sponsors. It was it was considered a a noble activity to donate to civic causes. And one of those causes that, that you could get honor for donating to was to sponsor some popular lecturer, popular teacher. Like today we speak of patrons of the arts. Well, they may have been Paul's patrons in that sense. But you can also see why when there's a riot that's associated at all with Paul, they're telling him, no, don't go in there. We don't need to speak. Just stay out of it. Let us handle it. And they put forward somebody from their own social class. They work behind the scenes, and you know the the grammatus, the uh, city clerk, comes out and and um, points out that this is an unlawful assembly, and um, just 
My, my mind is going faster than my mouth can go, son. I better just stop. I, I understand, but R.T. Ware, you, you've mentioned about Pa being a Roman citizen. Yes. First off, uh, there is some skepticism as to Pa yes. being a Roman citizen, because some people say, well, geez, don't you think he would have mentioned that some in his letters, and that it was very hard to be to become a citizen, and especially how he says, I was born a citizen. Do, do you think there is a good basis for the skepticism, or what? Not really. I mean, some of the arguments are stronger than others. Uh, one of the, the strongest argument is that Paul says he was beaten with rods, and that Roman citizens were not allowed to be beaten with rods. But we do know that Roman citizens sometimes were beaten with rods, sometimes were executed. It depends on the location. So, uh, Paul, as a Roman citizen, could have been beaten with rods. Luke himself would have known very well that uh, you know, Roman citizens weren't supposed to be beaten with rods, and yet he specifically mentions Paul being beaten with rods in the same scene, or what, maybe not the same scene, the same, the same uh, location, Philippi, where this, this happens. In terms of him being a Roman citizen, he doesn't go around the book of Acts boasting that he's a Roman citizen either. For one thing, he doesn't need to. His name, Paul, pretty much gives it away. I mean, most people named Paul were Roman citizens. You wouldn't normally have somebody in Jerusalem uh, naming their, their child, or, or somebody in Tarsus, even, uh, who's in the Jewish community there, naming their child Paul if they weren't a Roman citizen, because you know it, it didn't serve your interests within the Jewish community to have a name like that. Also, we do know of a lot of Roman citizens. People say, some people have said, uh, Stegemann said, you, you can't have a Roman citizen who's also a citizen of Tarsus, uh, or especially you can't have a Roman citizen who's, who's a Jewish Roman citizen. Well, that's not true, because Philo, in his embassy to Gaius, specifically tells us that in Rome, there was a whole a whole part of the Jewish community that were Roman citizens. We, we know them from other sources. We know from Josephus that even in Jerusalem, there were a few, uh, a few Judean nobles who were not only Roman citizens, but they were members of the knight class of Roman citizens. You know, Paul is just a regular Roman citizen. It does, you know, if, if Luke were trying to trying to make up something to give Paul status, he could have he could have gone a lot farther than that. But we also know how many of these people became Roman citizens. They inherited it from previous generations, but they inherited it because in the, in the first century BC, Pompey, not the city, but the, the general, the Roman general Pompey, right. enslaved many Judeans. Once they got to Rome, other Jews bought their freedom. Well, freed, citizen, freed slaves of Roman citizens normally became Roman citizens themselves and so it, it makes sense Luke doesn't specify this as, as the basis for Paul's ancestry but again uh, Paul or Saul first appears in connection with this um, uh, Hellenistic synagogue of the Libertines in, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 9 uh, the persecution of Stephen is, is initiated by the synagogue of the Libertines which probably suggests, um, well, actually the name does suggest, it's from Latin libertini. These were the, uh, th these were freed slaves of Roman citizens. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that that would be 
that would be Paul's background. His name fits it. The kind of people he was able to reach fits it. Uh, that he was of a, a sufficient class in Jerusalem to be able to study with somebody like Gamaliel, um, and and that he was he had this diaspora background uh, where where he was high status in the diaspora. All this also fits. When you look at his his letters, his argumentation there is brilliant, and it's not it's not the argumentation of somebody who didn't didn't have access to education, but the the argumentation of somebody who did have social standing. In his letters, he's not boasting about his his natural benefits. In fact, the only time where he he really boasts about his natural benefits uh, at any length is in Philippians three, and there he's boasting about his Jewish natural benefits, you know, circumcised the eighth day, uh, he, the Pharisee, and, and so on. The, the same people who would question whether Paul was a Roman citizen because they say, well, Luke is trying to emphasize his high status, could have said that Paul was saying that about, uh, you know, that Luke says that Paul's a Pharisee to emphasize his high status, because within Judean culture, that would be high status as well. However, Paul does corroborate that incidentally in his writings. Paul normally boasts in his weaknesses. That's his focus for boasting. He, you know, there, there, anyway, it's probably enough on that. But. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that this is the Deeper Worlds podcast, as I said earlier, and everything we do, we do it through the support of listeners like you. And we could really use that support greatly. And right now, as I'm speaking, the website happens to be down. We're working on that. We're working on getting it back up. But if you can, I'd encourage you to go to our website <coughs> at deeperwaters.ddns.net, and uh, there's a link there. You can say, "See, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries." Now you click the link, you go there. That will take you to the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona, the Risen Jesus Ministries. You've gone to the right place. You make your donation there. And then you contact me or Mike or Debbie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And we're going to make sure that you get, we get your donation and it will be tax deductible. And I'd also like to let you all know that Mike is actually looking to get me on board with his team there as a paid member of a Risen Jesus staff. And in order to do this, they have had a matching grant set up by the chairman of their board until the end of the year, and if you're wanting the end of the year giving with a tax deduction bonus, right now is the time to do it. And in fact, it could be more beneficial for you to make a donation to Risen Jesus and to make it to us directly, so you can help match this 20000 a year. And when, when this gets matched, it will make it very easy for Ari and I to get to come down to Atlanta as soon as we can jump on board. Mike and I are already discussing ideas of what we'd like to do. I've bounced a few off of him. He mainly wants me to come on to be a social media expert in some ways to do the internet side of what we what they do at Risen Jesus. Now if you're concerned about this we're interfere with a podcast, what they've already told me is if you come on board, we want you to keep doing your blog five days a week like you've been doing and do your podcast every Saturday. Oh, Dawn, I guess I have to. Oh, well. Now, we're, we're thinking of even more things, like maybe making quick two-minute videos, things of that sort and such. But this would be a great opportunity for us. And remember, until the end of the year, $20,000 matching grant, so everything you give 
Until it reaches the 20,000 point, it will be matched dollar for dollar. Now, I'd also like to encourage you that a lot of you I met at ETS and at the conference afterwards where Craig Kino did in fact speak on stories of demons and such, and that's an interesting topic in itself. A lot of it can be found in his book, Miracles. A lot of you I got to meet, put up pictures, things of that sort, and I've asked if you can go on iTunes and write a review of the Deeper Waters podcast. And even if I didn't see you at ETS, please go and write a review anyway, because I really love seeing those reviews. It, it makes my day to hear how well the podcast is being received, how much many of you like it. Now, you can also buy books on uh, Amazon to support us. I've co-written some books like Defining and Inerrancy and Groundless. And I've written a book, <coughs> A Creed for the Ages, A Look at the Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian. And in fact, uh, Jeremiah Johnston has made the suggestion to me, and I've started working on a book on uh, my experience growing up in the Asperger's community and how that has affected me in ministry and what the church can be doing to help people with Asperger's, because this is really something that uh, the church just doesn't do a lot of work with mental illness, unfortunately, and it's, uh, we need to, and by the way, when I say mental illness, I want to be clear on something. I do have a condition, but I tell people regularly, I do not suffer with my condition. Suffering is a choice. I live with it, and I, in fact, in many ways, enjoy it. I mean, hey, it got me to meet my wife, so there is something really, really good about that. And then, <clears throat> whenever way you can support us, and guys, uh, Christmas is coming up now. You know, maybe you'll be like me, and you might want to uh, pop the question around <laughs> Christmas time. That's exactly what I did Christmas Eve on uh, in 2009. I popped the question, and you know, engagement rings—they're pretty pricey to buy sometimes, but hey, they are worth it. And if you want to, go to the link, <clears throat> support us via purchasing jewelry. Click it, and the access code is LOVE. Then let me or Lena Cluster know about the purchase you made, such as an engagement ring or anything else special you want to give the lady in your life for Christmas. Now, if you purchase that, 25% of what you purchase goes straight to Deeper Waters. Now, guys, I, I really think this sounds like a good deal. You get to get something very special for your lady and make her very happy, and at the same time, you support a ministry. It, it, it's hard to beat that. Uh, Dr. Kino, do you have any organization or charity you'd like to see people support? <clears throat> sure. I think um, World Vision is a is a great place to to invest because of of how they're they're meeting needs around the world. I get I get so many requests for resources because you know I have so many friends in parts of the world where resources are very limited, and there's no way I can you know. <laughs> It's just too much to keep up with, but um, but World Vision has the logistical infrastructure to be able to get funds to people where they need it to, to work for economic development and and so on. And it's a it's a Christian organization. Um, I know when my wife was a refugee, and we'll talk more about this in our book Impossible Love coming up um, in a few months. But when uh, when she was a refugee, the uh, the people who helped. In her country, uh, once once the war stopped, during the war nobody could get in, but uh, once the war stopped, were Doctors Without Borders and the International Red Cross. Uh, but uh, and I and I am grateful to Doctors Without Borders and the International Red Cross 
for that. But, uh, but with World Vision, you also have the additional of um, Christian Witness, too. Now, this is at, at worldvision.org, right? I assume so. <laughs> now, I, I was going to ask you later on about what's going to be up next after this Acts commentary, but it looks like you've already told us what's coming up next. Could you tell us a little bit about this writing project you two are working on together? Sure. Um, actually, I've got like four books coming out in 2016, if they're all on schedule. I'm returning to the Flash theory right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that doesn't mean they were all written in one year. That just means... You know, for a few years, it looked like I wasn't producing anything. But anyway, um, the one book I already mentioned was the uh, Cultural Background Study Bible. And I think that's useful uh, for some people. Obviously, the, the four-volume Acts commentary will be too much for a lot of people. Mm. Um, but <laughs> if you just want the background material, it's summarized in my the revised version of my background commentary. Mm. And if you want it in its most concise form, Old Testament and New Testament background. I haven't read the Old Testament part, but um, of this of this uh, study Bible, because you know we're each editing our own part right now. But um, I plan to read it once it comes out. But uh, anyway, that that includes uh, includes a summary of, of background for the whole New Testament, and the probably the second one to come out will be Impossible Love which recounts my wife's experience as a war refugee, how we got together, and um, has some some really cool endorsements to it. Um, and then the third one, again, if they're in order, is a book called The Mind of the Spirit. It deals with the issue of uh, reason and um, the, the theme of thinking in Paul's letters, like the renewing of the mind, the mind of Christ, the mind of the Spirit, uh, set your mind on these things, and so on. And then the fourth book, which I wasn't expecting to come out next year, but this publisher sounds like they're going to work on it quickly, is um, Spirit Hermeneutics, which talks about how we bring together, you know, my, my work in the past, my scholarly work has been just dealing with the ancient meaning of the text. But of course, when I preach... I'm not just dealing with the ancient meaning, but I'm explaining it for how it's relevant for today, which I think the ancient meaning helps us to understand it more concretely. But how do you go from one to the other? How do you balance the two? And I tried to look at how Paul and Jesus and others interpreted the scriptures that they had. And uh, also you know, what, what the scripture itself teaches us about how to interpret and uh, try to engage some of the discussions about hermeneutics today, um, just to just to show how we need we need both. We need we need to understand the ancient context, but we also need the Spirit guiding us in in speaking God's heart to our generation today. Well, I hope you know we'd be happy to have you come on the show and talk about any one of those books if you wanted to. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that'd be great. Now let's get back to the Book of Acts. You know, we were talking about the claim about Paul being a Roman citizen. Now some people are listening and think, okay, what difference does this make? And this could be something we don't really understand because I, mean, I grew up here in America and I've been an American citizen all my life. Most who I meet are probably American citizens and they might not see what the big deal is. What would, would be the big deal about being a Roman citizen? Well, in some places, like I said, 
people didn't take it into account, if they didn't think they would be called into account for not taking it into account later on. But in places like Philippi, Philippi was a Roman colony, and they very much valued their ties with Rome, and word got back and forth because they were they were the eastern end of the Via Ignatia, and so you know there would be travelers going back and forth from from there to the you know the the, uh, the western end. Then people could take a ship across the Adriatic to Italy. People were traveling back and forth between Rome and Philippi a lot. And same with Corinth and in Rome. So Paul, uh, when when Paul is beaten there, he may not even know that his his rights as a Roman citizen will be taken seriously. Maybe it's the jailer who informed him. I mean, Luke doesn't go into those details, but technically, to beat somebody who was a Roman citizen without trial, to put somebody in chains who was a Roman citizen without trial was illegal. It was against Roman law. Mm-hmm. And so any place they could be called to account for that later would get very nervous. You know, So he's able to use that to his advantage. Uh, later on, he's able to prevent a beating that uh, was actually a, a, the kind of beating called coercitio. It was kind of used to secure evidence. People sometimes died from that, so Paul doesn't wait till after the beating to let them know. <laughs> in Acts chapter 22, you know, he lets them know up front. I mean, but they've already put him in chains, so in a sense, he has an advantage um, just as he had in Philippi, in that they've already broken some of the law, and uh, so he, he has them kind of where he wants them in, in that case, but uh, being, being a Roman citizen would also give him greater status People who were Roman citizens in colonies where a lot of the residents were Roman citizens, like like Philippi and Corinth, would would pay more attention. Uh, even even in in other places in the in the Greek East. I mean, in Rome, you know, people descended from Roman citizens were Roman citizens. You had a lot of Roman citizens in Rome, although not everybody there. You know, you had a lot of immigrants from the Greek East who weren't. But in in the Greek East, even many officials were not Roman citizens. Some of them were, but, but many of them weren't. And so Paul had a, a special advantage in, in reaching people. Uh, many, of the, many of the cities he went to were, were free cities. That is, they were, uh, they were not colonies. Their, their citizens weren't automatically citizens of, of Rome, but they, were, uh, they had Rome's favor in a, in a significant way. Ephesus, Thessalonica, and, and so forth. Now, when you talk about Philippi, and my wife and I have done some Bible reading together, I always tell when we get to Philippians 3, when Paul talks about your yeah. citizens of heaven, I say, hi, that was a real slam to Caesar right there. Yeah, if, if you were in Philippi, where the citizens of Philippi were honorary, automatic Roman citizens, mm-hmm. you would understand what it meant to be the citizen of a place where you'd never lived. The Philippians, you know, the Philippians who'd never lived in Rome, but who were nevertheless citizens, would understand that. And so, same way, we are citizens of heaven. Now, this uh, Roman citizenship also, did it affect him when he was on trial before? I I don't remember if it was either Felix or Festus, and he appeals to Caesar. He has that right as a Roman citizen, doesn't he? Yes, and that's that's another thing in uh, in terms of the reliability of Acts because it helps explain how Paul gets from custody in Judea and he he, he was already expecting trouble you see it in Romans 15 and then 
in Paul's later letters, he's writing from Roman custody. Well, how did that happen? And uh, and even from a place where you have apparently the Praetorian Guard uh, in uh, Philippians chapter chapter one verse thirteen, chapter four, I think it's around verse twenty-two, something like that. So so Paul. Uh, it, it helps explain Paul's letters. The entire final quarter of the book of Acts uh, really hinges on Paul being a Roman citizen because he uh, only a Roman citizen could appeal to Caesar and hope to get a hearing. And it actually lets Festus off the hook in Acts chapter 25. I mean, he confers with his concilium, with his advisors, but it lets him off the hook because Paul doesn't want to be sent to Jerusalem. He says, "No, it's my right as a Roman citizen not to not to do that." And and uh, and the and Paul, of course, doesn't want to be ambushed in the way he knows about what they tried to do to him back in chapter twenty-three. And in the case of uh, Festus, it lets him off the hook because he's getting local pressure to have Paul tried in Jerusalem. And this way I can say, look, it's out of my hands. I mean, who am I to stop an appeal to Caesar? That would be an insult to the emperor. So, uh, and and he, then he gets Agrippa and Bernice to sign off on it, and Paul's sent on his way. Yeah. I, I'd like to say something for the benefit of those hearing here to kind of lift up Dr. Keener a little bit more about when he's sitting here and he's giving all these references from Scripture for the chapter and verse, Precisely, I don't see an open Bible in front of him, and I don't see him typing anything out. I mean, I don't see everything, but I see him on camera here. So this is a whole lot of memory work that we have built in here, and I just find it very impressive. Thanks. Actually, if I were going from what I had written, I could give you I, I, I could give you a whole lot more details point by point in terms of the reliability, but I'm just going from memory, and I am an absent-minded professor. So <laughs> there's a whole lot more detail in the book, obviously. Uh, obviously. Now, um, one other historical connection in the Book of Acts I think we're talking about is one that we think is quite likely what Suetonius refers to. That's in Acts 18 when Sarah and Aquila show up because all the Jews have been expelled from Rome, and then Suetonius tells us that they've all been expelled because of riots due to a certain crest. Uh, yes. Do you see this as a connection? Oh, yes. Yeah, in fact, I wrote an article for a forthcoming uh Volume, uh, Brill volume on um, uh, ancient ancient history on on this uh, Suetonius, I think it's Claudius twenty five four something like that. Anyway, um, Suetonius talks about, and he's apparently depending on an earlier source, he's talking about um, the Jewish community being expelled by Claudius because of. The, the uh, riots instigated in connection with one Crestus. Crestus was a common slave name, and it's understandable that a Gentile would, would mix up the names, and it may have come to Suetonius in this garbled form, because elsewhere he does speak of Christians. He knows the right way to spell it. But even in the second, well, yeah, even other writers in the second century often mixed up Christus and Crestus, because you know, I they understand, but Church Fathers had a lot of laughs about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the, the uh, Crestus was a common slave name and meant kindness or something like that, whereas Christus, they didn't know what anointed one meant, and that's a Greek term meaning anointed one. Anointed one made sense in a Jewish context where they anointed kings and, and so on. But um, 
the uh, the Jewish community being expelled. Now that had happened under Tiberius, a generation earlier. Under under Claudius, we don't know if actually the entire Jewish community left. Uh, it's very unlikely. Sometimes emperors would expel a certain group, and some people would just lie low until the emperor died. This edict was probably passed in the year 49, and when Claudius died in the year 54, it it was automatically repealed. And that's why Paul, writing after 54, when he writes his letter to the Romans, he can send greetings to Aquila and Priscilla, whom he earlier met. They they had to leave Italy because of Claudius's edict. Well, now they've been able to come back, and they're they're in Rome. So uh, a lot of things fit together. You have a later writer who uh, speaks of disturbances with the Jewish community under under Claudius. It may be in the year 41, uh, which may just prefigure what he does in 49. Um, but the, the earliest sources are Suetonius and Luke. And you can see why Luke would leave out uh, the cause of the riots. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, in terms of in terms of Suetonius's account, it does show that there were there were debates about um, the Messiah in Rome already in the late 40s. So within within 20 years of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, I understand there are some people who think that uh, Suetonius is speaking when he speaks of Christus, he simply refers to a good man and such. Because supposedly that's what Christus means. But I take it you just don't really think that's very supportable. Well, no, because he's writing in Latin, and uh, and when it's a good man, normally, it, normally if you're taking it in Latin, a Greek name, it's it's normally because it was the person's name. Now, in terms of it being um, the Christ, why why would why would Jewish people be debating and and having fierce debates over? somebody who just was a, a slave named Crestus, uh, but but that they would be debating about Christ, now that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Uh, and you wouldn't think a later scribe, a Christian scribe, would put something in there about, uh, you know, Christus and, and spell it as Crestus, and, and also, um, you know, be talking about the stirring up of riots, and in the Jewish community, and no further explanation. I mean, it's it's, it's pretty solid. Now, when you talked about uh, Paul wanting to avoid the beatings and such, it did call to mind something else that's talked about very briefly in the book of Acts, and we don't have any reference to it, and that's the idea that Paul has a family, you know, because it talks about his nephew. What what can we gather from this? It's his sister's son. Mm -hmm. Now, there are a couple possible, well, yeah, there are a lot of possibilities, and so I explain possibilities in the book but in terms of what we actually know it's it's kind of limited mm -hmm. paul says that he was born in tarsus spent his early childhood there um he was in acts 22 3 the wording that he uses was usually used in the ancient world to suggest uh that he actually spent much of his youth in jerusalem and then of course he, he studied under gamaliel uh, that would be his advanced education which back then normally was done in your in your mid to late teens, uh, if you if you got to that stage of having an advanced education, so Paul could have been sent there. It was very common. Tarsus was a highly educated city, maybe 
more than more than Athens, it was maybe the philosophic capital of the of the ancient world, at least of, of Stoicism. I think Platonism was probably stronger in Alexandria. But then, in terms of uh, what Tarsians usually did, they usually sent their own uh, their own kids abroad for their advanced education to other cities. Now, I think that probably more likely than that is that Paul's whole family had moved to Jerusalem because Paul says in Acts chapter 23 that he's from a, a family of Pharisees. He's from a Pharisaic family. And we don't really have evidence for Pharisees in the diaspora outside of Judea and Galilee. So my, my thinking is that probably Paul's whole family had moved there and that's why his sister is there. It's not just that, uh, the family later decided to send the, you know, Paul's nephew there as well. I think probably the whole family was there. Um, the the plot against Paul was from some young men, and you know, this nephew was a young man too, so probably heard about it through the grapevine. We find all over the place in ancient literature that plots and things that were supposed to be kept secret didn't didn't stay secrets very long. They usually got leaked, and that seems to be the case uh, quite often in uh, plots against Paul were usually leaked. He was able to um, work around them. I've been told, in fact, that's one of the meanings behind the phrase I use is in Acts 26 when he's talking to uh, Festus, I think it is, where he says, these things were not done in a corner, which means you're not talking about secret events, you're talking about Everything about the life of Jesus was public. Yes. Yeah, that's true. I think that's Acts 26, 26. Abraham Herbie at Yale wrote an article on that, comparing uh, the use of that in philosophic literature. But um, but even, even more broadly, it's definitely emphasizing that the events were public events. Now, what do you think about the idea, since we talked a little bit about Paul having a saying, that he could have been married at one point in his life, because most rabbis, and Paul definitely was one, were married. Do you think there was any evidence for that? Was Paul maybe a widower, or what? No, I don't think there's evidence for that, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, that's often based on, people say, well, Paul, in Acts chapter 26, I believe it is, mm-hmm. maybe it's 22, I think it's 26. In one of his accounts of his conversion, he, he says that when Stephen was being stoned, I think it's 26. He said that he, he cast his his vote against him, or he cast his... Yeah, well, people say, oh, so he must have been a member of the Sanhedrin, and therefore he must have been married. First of all, the requirement for Sanhedrin members to be married comes from later rabbinic literature. It doesn't describe accurately the situation in the first century, because most of the members of the Sanhedrin, for the majority anyway, were Sadducees. They didn't care what Pharisees from whom rabbinic, later rabbinic ideas came, they didn't care what they thought. Um, you know, it was more important that you remember the aristocracy and that you supported the, the ruling powers. But secondly, uh, when Paul says he cast his vote, the Greek word there is a word that means pebble as well as vote. And, it, you know, it's kind of a play on words because as the, as the others were casting their stones, Paul says, I cast my pebble. Um, but it was commonly used people would often speak of casting your vote in a figurative sense. It just means that Paul approved of what they were doing, which is something that Acts says earlier. It doesn't mean that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was actually too young for that. Um, 
even even among the aristocrats, you wouldn't get somebody that young being a member of the Sanhedrin. Acts 758 is clear that he's he's still a young man when this is going on. Um, he was advancing among his peers, Galatians 1 tells us. So it's not surprising that in Acts chapter 9, he has access to the to the high priest, but that's only because he was advancing among his peers. Otherwise, somebody that young probably wouldn't have even had access to the high priest. Now, when you talked about Stephen just now, that would be another interesting thing to talk about because a lot of people think Stephen gets a lot of things wrong also in his act speech when he looks over the history. And then I've heard a few that maybe Stephen is actually going by the Samaritan Pentateuch and Stephen was a Samaritan. What's your thinking on Stephen? Well, sometimes the Samaritan Pentateuch actually shows us that there were different readings of the Hebrew text, such as we have behind certain passages in the Septuagint. Um, so mostly, though, I think Stephen is working from the Septuagint. He's a diaspora Jew. He's a Hellenist. We heard about that in uh, Acts chapter 6, where it introduces him. So he's, he's, he's primarily Greek-speaking. I don't think he was influenced by the Samaritans directly. I, I mean, I know the arguments for that, and I, I you know, respect the scholarship that goes into them, but um, I think it's more likely that he's he's just using the Septuagint, but then the, the, that's the Greek version of the Old Testament, the standard Greek version. And that's what um, probably, from the tomb inscriptions of the Sadducees, we would expect, okay, they used so much Greek, probably a lot of them used the Septuagint, the Greek version. Uh, also, you know, the, the accusers are from the synagogue of the Libertini and uh, or the freed persons, and it mentions all the locations that they came from. These were locations in the Greek-speaking diaspora, Alexandria and, and so on. So <clears throat> he's using the, the version that would relate to his audience best. Sometimes Stephen condenses things in the Old Testament because his, his, his issue isn't the... Sometimes he telescopes narratives, but we've seen Luke do that. Uh, like in comparing Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1, sometimes he'll telescope events too. I mean, he's got one fleshed out scene in Acts chapter 1, uh, but but you know, before then he says, he talks about 40 days. Well, if you just read the end of Luke chapter 24, you wouldn't know it was 40 days. This is just part of the way people were free to write back then, and they did. <laughs> you know, what about the idea of what happened with him? when Stephen died, because normally we get told that Jews didn't have the right to put people to death, but my my understanding is it quite likely wasn't like an official sanction, it was just a mob riot that broke out of control. It shouldn't have happened that way, but it happened. Yeah, it's like a mob lynching. Uh -huh. uh, <clears throat> because the Roman, the Roman governor actually didn't live in Jerusalem. Uh -huh. He came to Jerusalem for festivals. He lived in Caesarea. Uh -huh. And so... Um, there was nobody there really to stop them. There, there was uh, a contingent uh, uh, cohort of, of soldiers on the Temple Mount in the Fortress Antonia, but if you know he was stoned somewhere else other than in the Temple, you know they, they did intervene when Paul was Paul was about to be killed in Acts chapter 21. But but you know if this wasn't in the Temple, then it, it wouldn't have uh, happened that way. And the way that uh, 
Stephen is is executed, it's it's really interesting in terms of the background because <clears throat> normally when a when a prisoner was to be executed, they were supposed to confess their sins. But Stephen, instead of confessing his sins, he confesses theirs. And also normally when when uh, they were stoning people before you would execute somebody, and this was actually in Roman cultures as well as uh, Jewish Judean culture, but they would strip the person naked and then they would then they would uh, execute them. But it doesn't mention them stripping Stephen, although they may well have done so. The only thing Luke mentions is them stripping themselves. Now Greeks didn't mind doing that when they were involved in some strenuous activity, but the fact that the false witnesses strip themselves could send a message to Luke's audience, ah, who's really the guilty party here? And even when when uh, Stephen looks up into heaven and sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, well, why is he standing? You know, when everything else suggests an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord sits at the, at the right hand of my Lord, why is he standing? Well, a, stand, a judge would normally stand to render a verdict. Witnesses would normally stand uh, to give their testimony. And so, here it seems like Jesus is is standing on behalf of Stephen, and we know that the ones who are really guilty, who, the ones who are really on trial, are the ones who are executing him. Well, I'd like to ask you also, going back even further beginning, one thing that people bring up is that in Acts 1 you have 120 people in the upper room, but... Uh-huh. In First Corinthians, you have an appearance to 500 people, where what happened to all these people, there was 500 of them, and while there were only 120, supposedly, at the start of the Christian movement. <clears throat> well, we don't know. Uh, does First does Corinthians 15 talk about him appearing to all 500 in Jerusalem? Uh, it does appear more than 500. It doesn't say where, really. Yeah, because probably a lot of the... Uh, the majority of his followers were Galileans, mm-hmm. And after the Passover, the majority of them would have gone home. Mm-hmm. So uh, even even having 120 of his followers gathering together, and probably doesn't mean that, well, maybe when Peter's speaking, they're all there, but they weren't all there always, all the, all the time. Right. Those uh, the remaining days of, of prayer before the day of Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, what's the main... Very briefly, what's the main message you think we should really get from the book of Acts and your research on it? I think of all the things that I learned from the book of Acts, the most profound and the most important for our lives, uh, and this is not unique with me, but it really touched me deeply, is how often the outpouring of the Spirit in the book of Acts is associated with prayer. Disciples are praying in Acts chapter 1, then you have the day of Pentecost. They're praying together in Acts chapter 4, then in verse uh, 31, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and, and spoke the word of God with boldness, and um, and you have uh, them sharing their goods again as they did in chapter 2. Um, they, the apostles came and, and prayed for the Samaritans that they might receive the Holy Spirit in, in chapter 8, and, and so on. Um, it's like it says in Luke 11:13. Jesus said, your father, uh, you know, if you being evil, good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You know, Matthew is more general, good gifts, but 
Luke focuses on the most important of good gifts, and that's the Holy Spirit. And, you know, we, we want to see God pour out His Spirit. We want to see God do things that just are impossible for us to do. But God does do those things. And so I think the most important message is, you know, in the Gospels we read about what Jesus Jesus did when he was on earth. But Acts tells us, okay, now that I've narrated what Jesus began to do and teach, I'm going to show you how the name of Jesus continues to work in the world, how the how the Holy Spirit continues to work, continues to proclaim Jesus to the world through the church. And for the church to be what God meant us to be, so that the world can see the life of Christ, can see the heart of God through us, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And and we should we, we can regularly be praying for, for God's Spirit to be at work among us. And that is certainly an awesome, awesome point to make about the book of Acts. And I, I mean, right now, but there are believers in China who say the book of Acts is being lived out right here, right now. Uh, yes. If anyone's interested, I'm on the Amazon page right now. You can buy the whole four-volume set for $191.58. Or so if you have some pocket change... Try CBD, Christian Book Distributors, also. Okay. And it looks like if you want to, you could probably get them cheaper if you bought them all individual, but you better. But uh, Dr. Keener is saying Christian book distributor, so go there too. Um, Dr. Keener, do you have a blog or website where people can get in touch yeah. with you if they want to find out more? Yeah, but the Christian book distributors ha- has it at the moment for like $137. It, it may go up, but um, yeah, my, my blog is www.craigkeener.com, and you can get... I did a 23-hour lecture uh, course on uh, video on Acts. It's free there. Mm-hmm. So so are some of my... There's, there's a number of things free there. So if you don't have money, uh, but you do have access to the Internet, you can go there and get, get uh, stuff for free. And uh, a number of videos are downloaded there. If you go into the, um, the, the archives, you can find a, a number of Bible studies as well. Uh, you say a 23-hour lecture. It wasn't all at once, was it? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Yeah, the longest Bible study I ever taught was 14 hours. Wow. But, um, but that, I was younger back then. But, yeah, math, I have a Matthew course and a Romans course there on video as well, and then uh, some written things on Bible interpretation and so on that are, are free. Is there any final message you'd like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience today? Just... Uh, just God be with you. Uh, we we live in a in a really amazing time. In the in the past century, the center of, of world Christianity has shifted from the West to the global South. In, in in one century, some nations have gone from like my wife's country was maybe two percent Christian um, a century ago. Now it's like eighty nine percent Christian, at least officially Christian. And the Lord is doing tremendous things. Miracles are taking place. Uh, many persecutions are also taking place. We see things changing here. We live in a pivotal time. We really need the Lord, and we need His His blessing more than we need anything else. So, you know, we do all this work. We, we want it to be available to people. But even as we're doing the work, we need God's blessing because... He's the one for whom we do it, and he's, he's the one that we pray will accomplish his purposes in, in our generation. 
Well, Dr. Keno, it has been astounding having you here. A boatload of information. There's plenty more to get. I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Thanks so much. I'll look, I'll look forward to it. This, this coming year, at least, I'll have... Uh, you know, Acts took me a long time to write, but uh, I'll, I'll be having books come out a bit more regularly now, I hope. <laughs> well, I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Dr. Trimple Logman and Dr. John Walton together. We're going to be talking about how to read Job. Uh, maybe we are misreading it. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>